Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I knew I wanted to work on movies. You know, like all film students, you know, you think you want to direct. And I and I have directed a bunch of things over the years, but I really found my skills. Um, I, I understood the creative side enough to be, I think, a good producer and to be able to support the creative. And I, and I like to think that's the approach I bring to, to running Pixar. But I've had a great opportunity to work with these fantastic directors and producers and, and people who have advanced the technology over the years, both at ILM and at Pixar here. It's just been um, a fantastic uh, adventure. Jim Morris serves as the president of Pixar Animation Studios, the iconic entertainment company that has produced countless classic animated films like Ratatouille, Up, Toy Story 3 and 4, Cars 2 and 3, Monsters University, and so many more family-friendly favorites. In 2009, 44 years after creating his first animated film, Morris's career came full circle when he produced the Academy Award-winning Pixar hit, WALL-E. Morris, who is a two-time degree holder from Syracuse with an undergraduate degree in film and a master's in television and radio from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications, is our proud guest today on the Cuse Conversations podcast. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you joining us. How are you holding up these days? I'm holding up fine. It's it's a pleasure to be here. I'm actually talking today from my office at the studio. I've been coming back into our Pixar studio for the last uh, three months or so. Uh, even though we only have a portion of our employees back, I find it great to be here and, and working in person. As uh, great as Zoom has been to all of us in the uh, pandemic times, uh, there's nothing quite like being in person to collaborate and do your work and so forth. I know it's a, a tough question to start off with, but how challenging was it to go through the pandemic with Pixar, with your employees, and with the fact that everything shut down to a halt? It, it was a challenging time, although to be quite honest, we were incredibly lucky. Um, we had already um, brought in a lot of the equipment we would need to be able to set our artists up to work remotely, actually all our employees to work remotely. And so uh, they basically could take home their, their, their work gear and configure it in, in their homes to work. So we were able to continue with all of our production work. Uh, we were about a month and a half from finishing the film Soul when we all had to leave the studio, but we finished it uh, um, outside of the studio and then subsequently uh, completed a, a film called Luca, which came out in June. Uh, both of those films, Soul and Luca, um, we had to release on Disney Plus instead of theatrically since the theaters were so impacted uh, and audiences were so small. But they uh, both those films uh, got done on time and on budget and performed really well. The tricky thing was really families uh, with their kids and trying to juggle kids at home with school and work. And then, uh, and to an extent, people that didn't have kids who were isolated and, uh, you know, didn't have human contact as, as much as they'd like. Those, those were issues. Uh, but from a production and technology point of view, we did well. Certainly, uh, many things that happened during COVID impact, impacted us a lot. You know, um, the social justice issues that came up and the variety of things that were just happening in society that impact our employees. And I think I think made it all more extreme when everybody's sitting looking at their computer monitor all day. It sort of lets you kind of 
engage at a level you might not in, 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 a, in a more normal time. Uh, we're starting to get back. We hope to have our employees back, almost all of them in um, January on site here. About We have over 1,400 people at, at, at our studio now. And we'll continue to have flexibility, some amount of work from home and so forth. But um, we are looking forward to getting back in and, and again, uh, collaborating in person on, on these projects. Were you impressed at the wherewithal that it takes to, because I'm sure before the pandemic, if someone said, hey, Jim, put together a, a film and do it remotely or do it not having all your characters, your reaction would be probably different than it is today after Luca and the other projects you've pulled off. I was stunned to, to see how well we did. And to be honest, I attribute a lot of it to the fact that we don't have a huge amount of turnover here. Employees tend to be here for a long time. So you you know, kind of develop a rep group sort of feel to things. And I think that there was just a great shorthand and level of relationship people had with one another working that we benefited from because everybody was used to kind of, you know, jamming together and so forth. And and we carried that over to, you know, to the Zoom world here. Again, you know, it's it's not that it's exactly the same, but I was I was just blown away by how well people did and the resiliency of, of people in this. And again, I say we were very fortunate. We have a lot of colleagues in the live action world. And then, of course, uh, just regular folks with jobs that couldn't work and couldn't go to work and so forth. And by comparison, we were extremely lucky uh, and fortunate. We at Syracuse, we're doing the same thing. We're ramping up our in-person programming, and we're so thrilled to get to welcome you back to campus uh, for Orange Central, our homecoming celebration. Yeah. You're going to be receiving the Aarons Award. It's not to humble you, Jim, but it's it's literally the highest accolade that an alum can receive of Syracuse University. What does that mean to you to be one of those select few that gets honored with the Aarons Award? Well, I was totally shocked to, to, to receive word of that and uh, uh, incredibly humbled and honored and to, to um, you know, e- even be in the county of a lot of the people that have received that award is, is just um, to be included in that's amazing. And as I say, very, very humbling. Um, I have uh, kept a relationship with Syracuse University over the years uh, for a variety of reasons. One is I have stayed close with one of my professors, Owen Shapiro, who um uh, started the Syracuse International Film Festival some years ago, and I participated in that, and then became more involved in in, in VPA and, and served on the um, on the board of that right now. So I've, I've kept a, a connectivity, and um, I've, I've really enjoyed that. But to to to, um, to get an honor like this just uh, was out of the blue to me. I'm, I'm just shocked, surprised, and uh, grateful your career has been so accomplished and so decorated. Can you give me a couple examples of, besides Professor Shapiro, how Syracuse and how your time on campus has influenced your career? You know, when I got to Syracuse, I came into the Newhouse Film Program. And right right around the same time, uh, VPA was starting a film program. And I was doing my minor in English literature, though I took uh, French and and, uh, Russian lit courses as well, and anthropology courses. And having uh, having a foot in those three areas, you know, the Newhouse School with its a little more business orientation and and VPA with its artsier aesthetic orientation, and then the arts and sciences, which actually gave me 
things to make films about and ideas to think about and so forth. I, I, I those things kind of as a as a package have stayed with me, and they're things that I, I kind of feel inform my my actions every day and my thinking every day, and helped form a a compass on how to deal with the business and, and, and aesthetic issues and production issues that I, I deal with day to day. How about when it comes to pieces of advice that you received on campus, or maybe it was a lesson that you learned from one of your classes that you could point to as being really instrumental in your development? Well, this is going to seem like an unusual one. I was reflecting on this the other day. I have to write a lot of memos and review deals and, and uh, a lot of emails like we all do. And um, I, I, one of my requirements in Newhouse was to take News Writing 101. And at that point in time, back in the dark ages then, we would come into this classroom and you had a typewriter in front of you and the professor would give you an assignment and 30 minutes to write your, your story error-free, typed error-free on your typewriter. And it was this kind of like SWAT team approach to writing where like, you have 30 minutes, you gotta, it's gotta be done and out the door. And it, it, it sort of um, disciplines you and creates muscles in your thinking that that are very useful, I find, day-to-day kind of helping me just organize and get a lot of stuff done. I'm going to give myself this much time. I'm going to get this thing done and move it out the door. So from a, from a and it's sort of a small example. There's so many things that, that I kind of carry from, from SU, but it, it was something I was thinking about. I think that that has had a huge News writing 101 had a huge shaping effect on me for, for, for that reason. But there were, there were many other uh, things. I, I, um, I had the opportunity to be the team cinematographer for the basketball team. Jim Beheim had just gotten his job as the boss of it. And I didn't have much interaction with him, to be honest, but I would carry this gigantic Oricon camera up to the press booth and I would, I would capture the game on film because this is before there was any kind of practical video to use for something like that. TV stations had it in their studios, but there was nothing out in the field at that point in time. And it was something about having to, you know, hustle that along and, and get up there and shoot that film and get a process, get it to the team and so forth it was kind of a mix of a lot of fun SU things. It was my, my camera work and I was there in the, you know, with the basketball team doing sports and I was getting paid a little bit of money to do it. It was kind of a, kind of a fun thing. What was it like? And did you have any sort of uh, dealings with him beyond maybe handing off the game film to him or his assistants? I would, I would certainly like to claim more than that, but the truth of it is I was handing off, <laughs> handing off my game film. And of course, you know, that was the early years. And, and though he was doing a stellar job right out the gate, he, he wasn't quite Hall of Famer status back, back in 1975 <laughs> or whenever that was. I just love the humble beginnings out there. You've got two, two legends in their fields, Coach Beheim and, and Jim, what you've done with Pixar. It's, it's really remarkable. And I know that I'm going to go a little bit of a trope here, but we're taught as kids to be creative, to use our imaginations. And sadly, a lot of us lose that sense of wonder as we get older. You never have. You started off wanting to make films and get creative, and you still get to do that on a day-to-day basis. How did you maintain that creativity? Well, I, I, you know, I, 
I tried to take advantage of every opportunity that I could that was kind of aiming in this direction. And it, look, in fairness, my a lot of my job is very business oriented at this point in time. So I'm, I'm kind of half creative and, and half business. Um, I, th- I think I think it was honestly just trying to um, keep the goal of that dream, you know, to be able to, to keep doing it. And it's taken me through lots of twists and turns. Everybody has uh, you know, zigs and zags in their careers, I think, and so forth. And, and, um, and I've been very fortunate, you know, some of it's luck, right? You're at the right place at the right time at the right point in history for something to happen. I was at Industrial Light and Magic and, and kind of was there at the height of it, the photochemical uh, period of time when we were doing everything, shooting on film and optically compositing and doing our effects that way. And during my tenure there, we transitioned the company to basically a digital base. Um, and, it, and, and then I was able to continue that when I came to, to Pixar, albeit in a different way, since we're doing, you know, whole movies here and whole stories. So I think, um, you know, it was a lot of it was just good fortune. I, I think a lot of the, the breadth of potentials that I had, I guess I'll, I'll put, were really things that I, I learned at SU and ideas and great professors who, you know, gave me chances and from whom I learned and so forth and just tried to kind of carry, carry that potential forward. You got to make the most of your opportunities and you're right. A little bit of luck doesn't hurt. Persistence doesn't hurt either. Can you give our audience a little insight into uh, you know how you got your big break with George Lucas, the legendary trailblazing filmmaker and entrepreneur? Well, I got a, a true story here. I was working in Syracuse after graduate school at WCNY TV, the PBS station, and I started there doing instructional films, and then I was doing documentaries there for them. By the time I left, I went to to uh, see a movie one night, and and it was Black Stallion, and I had made a couple short films that had sort of a similar feel and tone to them. And I, I decided I want to go work for the man who made that film. And um, so I quit my job at WCNY TV and I packed up my Chevette and I drove to <laughs> San Francisco. I'd never been West of Buffalo in my life, but I drove to San Francisco. I knew one guy from SU. He said I could sleep on the floor in his living room for a week when I got there. And um I went out there looking for Carol Ballard, the director of, of, of Black Stallion. I didn't meet him for 15 more years, by the way. So in the meantime, I had to, to get some work. And I started just getting the local directory that had all the filmmakers and all kinds of things like that. And I would just go down the list. I'd spend eight hours a day making cold calls and trying to get anybody that would to give me an informational interview and help me out a little bit. And most people were great. Most of them did, you know, over time. And I started picking up little jobs. Um, I um, I met a guy who said, you know, if you want to understand high-end production, you ought to maybe think about doing some advertising production because there's there's short uh, their shoot days are short, but they do high-end production, 35 millimeter, and you'll learn all kinds of stuff. So I did go eventually get a job uh, at, at one ad agency and then another, and then I worked for some commercial production companies. And I, I got pretty good at that. Um, the ad agencies, you know, you create the, the, the campaigns and stuff, but then you go to production companies to make them. And so the production companies I was working at um, were making uh, national commercials and, and regional commercials. Anyway, long and short of it is I met the guy who was running Lucasfilm. 
um, a guy named Charlie McGuire, who'd been a big uh, Paramount exec in his earlier days. And Industrial Light and Magic was, they, they had a, a slow period. They just weren't getting as many films in, and they thought maybe they would get into the commercial business a little bit. So I, um, I got hired there to write a commercial business plan for them and to start their commercial division. Hmm. And, and um, they didn't know anything about it. So I was, you know, they were delighted to get me and I was delighted to get there. And to be honest, I set up that division, but at my, my earliest moment, I um, moved over into the feature film side. I, I, I got an offer I couldn't refuse and got to work on the spectacular and groundbreaking film Caddyshack 2. That was my first, um, not Caddyshack 1, not the good one, Caddyshack 2. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it, it was fantastic and, and to be able to work on that. And I, I produced a handful of films and, uh, at ILM, and including The Abyss and Always. The Abyss was a Jim Cameron film and Always was a Steven Spielberg film. So I got to work with both of those guys uh, up close and personal and then became head of production at, at uh, ILM. So I was overseeing all of the films and, and the producers and effects supervisors there, eventually GM and then president. And then um, uh, George Lucas has me also take on Skywalker Sound, which is the sound post-production arm of Lucasfilm. And then in my last few years, I added to that uh, Lucasfilm animation. The, uh, George was just starting to want to get into maybe making um, some animated films. He, uh, many people know this, but for those that don't, Pixar was part of Lucasfilm. It was called the Lucasfilm Computer Graphics Division. And John Lasseter and Ed Catmullen and a number of the people I still work with worked there and started that. And George uh, spun it off in 1987, 86, to, to uh, sell to Steve Jobs. At that point in time, uh, uh, Pixar had developed some technology and actually had a machine called a Pixar, which was kind of a rendering device. And so... Uh, so Steve started them up and, and they started making TV commercials and so forth. And I, they were still on the same campus as, as ILM. So I would meet some of the guys and Ed Catmull became a, a good friend of mine. Um, and as I was after seven, almost 18 years at, at Lucasfilm, I had been in management so long. I wanted to kind of get back and, and uh, produce film again. And um, so I, I left to come over and, and work for Ed. And uh, that's when I got the opportunity to produce Wally. I find it fascinating to hear the, to connect the dots of how people go. I mean, you're a local cameraman here in Syracuse. Black Stallion has this tremendous effect on you. you uh, with one alum in your pocket, you go out there, crash on a couch, and you start making this path towards your dream career. I love the persistence behind it. That's just such an awesome Syracuse story. It, it took persistence. And, and I wish I was clever enough to tell you that it was clearly mapped from the beginning. But the fact was, you know, I was just going out. I, I, I knew I wanted to work on movies, you know, like all film students, you know, you think you want to direct. And I, and I have directed a bunch of things over the years, but I really found my skills, um, I understood the creative side enough to be, I think, a good producer and to be able to support the creative. And I, and I like to think that's the approach I bring to, to running Pixar. Uh, Pete Doctor is the chief creative officer here. And we kind of work as a producer-director team as if we're producing and directing Pixar. So instead of a more 
a kind of corporate um, uh, uh, mental model, we, we sort of bring more of a filmmaking model to it and see it as this kind of evolving, changing thing. And that's, that's been great. I came here, I worked on Wally. During that period, I was promoted to head of production here. And then when Disney uh, acquired Pixar, not too long after that, I became general manager as well. And then um, I, I had most of the company reporting to me, Ed Catmull, made me president, I guess about seven years ago now. And he was here up until a couple of years ago as kind of the chair, I'll say. Um, but I've had a great opportunity to work with these fantastic directors and producers and, and people who have advanced the technology over the years, both at ILM and at Pixar here. It's just been um, a fantastic uh, adventure. From an outsider's perspective, it's been fascinating to watch animated film and, and the animation industry in general explode. And people might not realize that there wasn't a time when this wasn't a prevalent industry. How, when did you start to notice this kind of really developing and having the staying power? It's incredible. It's great that you mentioned that, you know, we all know there was the, the height of, of some of the Disney years back in the golden age of Hollywood, you know, thirties, forties, fifties into the sixties a little bit. And then animation started to kind of feather down a little bit theatrically. We all had our stuff we loved on Saturday morning cartoons, whether it was Bugs Bunny and those kinds of things, but it, it kind of stayed along at a, a, I'd say a steady level for a good period of time. I do think that that Toy Story was part of fueling a renaissance in animation, not, not just in terms of in, inventing computer graphics and animation uh, for entertainment, but, but um, getting people interested again in even 2D type animation. And I give The Simpsons some credit too. <laughs> there's lots, yeah. there's lots, of credit to, <laughs> lots of credit to give, but it is, it's so interesting you say that because um, in the year Toy Story came out, I think there weren't, but five films total eligible for consideration for an Academy Award in animation. And now, you know, there's dozens and dozens a year that, that uh, are eligible for consideration for best animated film. And there's, you know, there's whole cable stations devoted to animation and, uh, you know, all the major characters, you know, Netflix is making a ton of animated fare and Disney's making a ton of animated fare for Disney Plus. And it is really um, it's really a, a gold rush era in animation all, all over the, the, the world and animation, not only the types of things Pixar does, um, but animation in live action film. I mean, a, a Marvel movie can have 2000 effect shots in it of animation, animated characters, animated body doubles, uh, all kinds of things. So the top has just blown off it. It is, I, it, it's gotta be, it's, it's gotta be 50 times the size of the market that it was when I got to Industrial Light and Magic. What made you interested? I know you have the film background and you did some documentary work at Syracuse too, but how did you become involved with animation and wanting that to be a path for yourself? Well, you know, it, 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 it's a funny story. In 1964, I saw three films. I was nine years old. And, and um, one of them was Goldfinger. One of them was um, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. And one was Jason and the Argonauts. Jason and the Argonauts has a scene in it where skeletons come to life and form an army fighting Jason and his Argonauts. And um, 
And I, you know, as a kid in the theater, seeing these skeletons move, I, I could not figure out what I was even looking at. And it was the work of Ray Harryhausen, the great stop motion animator. He does, had done many stop motion films and uh, they're stop motion animated characters. And if you look at it now, it's very primitive looking, but at the time it was pretty staggering. And that sort of set me on the path, like what was that that I just saw and how did they do that? And I was, I was um, fortunate, I, uh, a few years later, I'd understood enough that I could actually start making some little films, some little stop motion films. And I went to a, a school where the teachers were actually amenable to, from time to time, letting me turn in a film instead of a paper. And so I, now I probably spent 20 times the amount of time on making a film that I would have on a paper, but, but um, it, it allowed me to, to get, um, you know, really ensconced in it. I, I, I grew up in Delaware and there is no filmmaking community in Delaware. There certainly wasn't at the time. I didn't even know anybody else that made films than me. And I was just a kid, but the formative moment, um, I never thought of it as something I could do. It was just something I liked to do. I didn't think you could do it as a, for a living or anything. That was such an abstraction. And I had a high school uh, a teacher. I was going to go to... <laughs> I had gotten into Tufts and I was going to go study psychology in, at Tufts and I'd gotten into SU, not into the film program. And I had a teacher who said, why are you going to study psychology? What do you care about that? Go, go, go to film school. So, so I contacted the people at, at SU and they were kind enough to let me move into Newhouse instead of just the, you know, the, the arts and science uh, program. And that was the, that was the thing that professor and then SU led me into the film program <laughs> Probably all of the above wouldn't have happened if it wasn't, that. you know, it's those tiny little things that happen. You're like, wow, that was lucky. So that, that was my, um, the beginning of the path, but uh, again, very fortuitous. And I had great professors at, at SU, learned a range of stuff, you know, technical production, aesthetic. Um, it, it was, it was terrific. We definitely are thankful for all of our therapists and psychologists and in, in from Tufts and Syracuse and other institutions. <laughs> However, we are very thankful, Jim, that you chose this creative path to go down because I think that the power of films and the power of creativity and entertaining us, again, we talked about it during the pandemic, yeah. but people need distractions. They need things that take their minds off of their work and their problems. And that's what you guys do. How much joy do you get knowing that your company put smiles on people's faces. You entertain people. That's such a, that's gotta be such a cool feeling for you. We, we derive a huge amount of satisfaction entertaining the audience. And we try to make, we try to make our films, we call them four quadrant, which means they appeal to both genders and, and the different ages and, uh, of people. And, um, and, and we try to make films that we want to go see. Uh, you know, we don't think, well, what would children like to see? We, we never do anything like that. We kind of come in and say, what would we like to see? Now, we're all family people. We have kids and so forth. And we we want to make films that anybody can go to. We're not trying to make films that are so edgy or have content that isn't, you know, appropriate for, for children or, or for people who don't like that kind of thing. But it's, it's hugely gratifying. Um, we like it when people are entertained, laugh, maybe cry a little bit and are somehow a little bit different than when they, than when they were before they saw the movie, something that sticks with them a little bit and, and changes them a little bit. I'd say for me, an example, that's uh, a movie like Inside Out. I remember being, um, you know, when my, 
daughters were the age of, of the, the girl in Inside Out, I, I'd get irritated with them for their moping and stuff like that. And then when, when you see this interpretation that shows you what's going on inside there, I suddenly felt deep pangs of guilt for my bad parental behavior. But just those kinds of things that you kind of come away and you maybe see something a little bit different and, and uh, it, not heavy handed, they're not message films or anything, but just something in there a little bit. So we try to try to have those things in there and come from an authentic place to do it. It's so gratifying to get letters from people and who talk about the films and how they change them. We have, this happens in animation a fair amount, but we, we got a, quite a lot of letters from people who have uh, kids on the autism spectrum and so forth. And, and the kids really connect with the films. Sometimes those films really help bring them out in a different way and reading stuff like that, you know, you just, it, it's sort of overwhelming when you feel like, wow, you actually were able to reach in and make a connection that maybe, you know, led to improving somebody's life and, and that kind of thing. So um, again, that happens with animation um, more than other types of films by far, but we get a lot of feedback about that type of thing as well. It's really powerful. And again, it's a testament to just the impact that the entertainment industry can have on us and especially hearing the stories about the autistic children and the relatability that they get from these, these films. And Wally was kind of a similar from an outsider perspective movie that had that classic, it, it resonates with people and it brought home obviously some hardware for you with the Academy Award. Did you think Wally was going to be as successful as it was? And what was it like to get that Academy Award? I'll tell you, I'll tell you um, everybody who makes a film at Pixar is always certain they are the one that's going to screw it up. That, you know, the film you're working on is going to be the one that fails and, and, and everybody's going to go like, what were they thinking? And, and so the, the good part of that is I think we, we have never rested on our laurels because we're always just afraid like, yeah, you know, you're only as good as your last film. And I don't know if our next film can be as good as that. So, um, you know, we're making a film that the first, you know, two thirds of it is a silent movie, basically. And just thinking like, will that work? And will audiences, and we kept thinking like, well, we like it. I don't know, maybe people like it okay. Um, and that was, and that was one actually that did reach out to a lot of autistic kids. I think probably because of its silent film nature, everything about it, it's a nonverbal film when you get down to it. It's largely, uh, largely nonverbal at least. Um, that was a thrill, you know, going back to Robinson Crusoe on Mars, one of my other formative 1964 films. It, um, I, I got to it and I really felt like I'd been in basic training my whole life to work on Wally, like the, the dozens of, of sci-fi films I'd worked on for George at Industrial Light and Magic and, and my, um, my love of that genre and so forth. And I, and, and, and interestingly, my photographic knowledge was great because they, they wanted to make a film that had the feeling of being shot with uh, the gear you would have shot a film with in the mid seventies, kind of star Wars time. So we were able to replicate the, you know, the um, aberrations of the lenses of that time. So forth. I had enough knowledge about that stuff to kind of help guide that, which was, which was really fun. So there was a lot, I was able to contribute to that film in a lot of ways uh, as a result of all my, interests and the, the other projects I've worked on. Um, but we never, you know, you never know how a film's going to land. Um, and and um, we're really gratified by that. And it did, it, it won everything that year. It was one of those, <laughs> it doesn't always work out like that. Not every movie you work on lands, 
lands that well. But um, I'm, I'm really proud of that. That was a that was a great film to work on. Working with Andrew Stanton, who's a good friend, uh, was a real um, real thrill. I hadn't worked with him before that film, and um, you know, being on that team with the folks here was was just very special. How often do you find yourself coming in contact with fellow Syracuse alumni when you're working on one of the projects? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I just came across a writer we hired who went to SU. And, um, and one of my friends who was at Disney Plus, who's now at Netflix, when I ran into him and we realized he was a, a, an SU guy, um, he's actually on the VPA board. I recommended him uh, for that. I actually stay in, in touch with, I'd say, a handful of my um, SU classmates, my filmmaking uh, classmates there, we still stay in touch. And, um, and I've stayed, you know, as, as, as you know, I've stayed in, in touch with Owen Shapiro over the years, uh, and, and come and, and worked with him on the festival. And, and, um, so, um, yeah, it, it's, you know, there's a, 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 one of the women I work with here, uh, uh, grew up in Syracuse and went to SU and then, uh, Ben Burt, the great sound designer, uh, grew up in uh, Syracuse, and he's a good friend of mine. His dad was actually a chemistry professor at SU. Uh, so there's all of these, you know, kind of connections to Syracuse and to the university that, um, you know, they're, they're just there constantly. I know your industry prides itself on telling great stories. Do you ever take a moment to pinch yourself at your own success story? Uh, well, there's not a day that goes by when I don't consider my good fortune. And I and my um, my joy of walking through the door at this studio and the same when I was working at Lucas is just to feel like what a what a privilege it is to get to work in this industry on so many levels. And um, I um, I pinch myself constantly on that front. I, I do, I, I do look back from time to time and think like, wow, been a lot of, a lot of water under the bridge here. <laughs> but with, with all the good and the, and the, and the more difficult stories that, that go along with that. Filmmaking isn't, isn't happy every day. You know, there's, <laughs> there's problems and difficulties and so forth. But, um, but I uh, am, you know, so grateful for the career I've had and for the, you know, the beginnings I was able to get at SU and, and to some extent um, uh, before getting to university. Um, and, uh, and just the, you know, I found that, um, you know, people are very helpful and, and, uh, and I've been helped a lot in my career and had people have my back and mentor me and so forth. And, and that's, been, that's been huge. And I try to pay that forward as best I can. Well, I think it's amazing the power of the Orange Network. We're, we're two alumni, you and me sitting here on the podcast, and you know people love to look out for the current students. What's your advice if somebody is listening and they want to enter into this foray of animation entertainment? What's your best piece of advice to give them? I'll tell you, uh, I, you know, I was in exactly the same place they were at, at that point in time. And I can say, I just, I, I don't know anybody who has been passionate about being in television or film or some aspect of entertainment that hasn't found some way to break into it if they were persistent and kept their dream. And it may not have been the thing they thought it was going to be. So they need to be, you need to be a little bit flexible in terms of looking at your opportunities and, and maybe even 
looking at yourself in the mirror and determining what you're really good at. I, I, I mentioned before, you know, most film students want to go off and be directors. That's kind of the kind of the norm. And some end up writers and some producers and so forth. I, I probably, and I've done all of those things and I'm probably a better exec than I am at any of those things. And some of that's just waking up going like, oh, I'm pretty good at that and I actually like it, you know? So when I say keeping your dream, it doesn't mean like I'm going to be a director no matter what, but as you get into the business and learn about it, like, well, what is the thing that seems to be falling in place in some way that feels more natural and you're able to excel in and so forth. But again, just to put it in a capsule, be persistent, be optimistic, uh, be flexible, be willing to zigzag in your career, but kind of keep the dream that's the most important thing to you. And I would say mine was, I want to be involved in feature filmmaking. And I was able to kind of do a little zigzag route until I, until I got to that. It does mean sometimes you have to uproot and move somewhere else, but um, that's, you know, which not everybody wants to do, but um, it, that's also part of the equation. Well, the last question I have to ask you, and we've covered so much on the podcast, we appreciate you making the time here. When you look at animation from when you first were a kid becoming involved and seeing stop motion, now we see all the graphics, all the high tech nature of animated films. What's next for the industry? Well, you know, we're, we're at a point where in live action and animation, you can really do anything pretty much that you can imagine. You can do it. Some of it's more expensive to do than other things are, but you <laughs> can do it. I think for me that the things that excited me when I was a kid are the same things that excite me now. And that's really the most important thing is, is telling a, a good and meaningful story. And, and can we make better stories in the future? I, I don't know. I think we can find different tellings of stories and different incarnations of stories and maybe more diverse stories. I think, you know, there's a, 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 a lot of feeling here, here we're trying to, you know, our audience is changing in America and around the world and, and uh, bringing up different types of story ideas and more diverse storytellers is important. That's, that's really what we're focusing on. The technology side is always fun and stimulating. And most of our focus now is on making tools that just make it easier to do all the stuff we do now. You know, it's, it's, it, it's always a surprise to people when you talk about computer animation, because they think the computer does the work, but the, the computer is just the modern, you know, pencil and paper. Um, it takes us 20,000 person weeks to make one of our films. And that's quite a bit more than almost any hand-drawn film that's ever been made. So, you know, it's the amount of, of person labor and artistry that goes into to an animated film is, is huge. And I think, the more we can put that in service of telling meaningful, authentic stories that, that transform people, um, that's, that's where I like to see it headed. Well, it's been a phenomenal experience, Jim, hearing your story here on the podcast. If you want to hear more of Jim's story, make sure you sign up for the Syracuse University Alumni Awards celebration, part of Orange Central, October 29th, 2021, here on the Syracuse University campus. He is Jim Morris, the president of Pixar Animated Animation Studios. Jim, you've been a treat. Really appreciate your time as always. John, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure and uh, glad to talk with you and look forward to getting back to Syracuse. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>